Will you turn with me to the book of Habakkuk? Now, uh, you may wonder how you pronounce this name, and uh, it depends whether you trained at Spurgeon's College or Birmingham Bible Institute. The Bible Institute says Habakkuk, I noticed this morning, <laughs> pastor, but uh, he was the more correct, because, uh, so one up for Birmingham Bible Institute, the Hebrew is Habakkuk, a uh, peculiar name, but it's interesting that it comes from a root which means to cling. And uh, so whether there's something uh, prophetic in his name or not, but it's, it's to do with clinging. And here's a man who learned to cling to the Lord in very difficult circumstances. So let's all be Habakkuk, shall we? People who cling to the Lord. Well now, it's a book that's very little read, of course. I don't know whether you read it. or you even know where to find it. It's between Nahum and Zephaniah, if you are a new Christian. And it's page uh, 389 in my Bible, but I have no idea what it is in yours. <laughs> I hope you can find it, will you? Now, very little is known about this man. We don't read, him, read about him elsewhere in the scripture and we have very little detail knowledge of him. He just suddenly appears and this is the book he writes. Um, and yet, in spite of this, there's hardly a person in the Bible with whom you and I can identify so readily as with this man. Because he's a man who had great problems about faith. I don't know whether you do. I've had great problems about faith. And he works through these problems to come to a place of absolute faith. Now his prophecy is not so much a message as a dialogue. He starts with a dialogue with God. He's talking to God. And if you have the New International Version, as I have, you see that chapter 1 begins with the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received, an oracle is uh, a, a message that he gives, received this from God. And then the first heading is Habakkuk's complaint. Now, I don't know whether you complain or grumble, but here he is, he's complaining. And the complaint is, starts in verse 2. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict. The law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Here are eleven things, terrible things that are prevailing in the nation. Go through them all, you see. Violence, injustice, wrongdoing, destruction, violence against, strife, conflict, rather like our own nation, isn't it? Here it is in Israel. And um, this produces in Habakkuk a deep crisis of his faith. He's crying out about these things. Why are these things going on? Now he's a believer. He's a prophet, but he lives in a world where faith is challenged. 
I don't know whether your faith is challenged, but mine has been time and time again. When you're tempted to ask, why? Now here's a problem, the problem of faith. Get that first of all, a problem of faith. Don't think that you can have faith without problems. Faith always has its problems. I believe unbelief has far more problems than faith. But don't think that faith is an escape from problems, because it isn't. But the trouble is that faith lives with problems. And it grows in problems, and it flourishes, and it triumphs in problems. And that's the message of Habakkuk. Now the problem is, of course, as you see here, why does God allow wrongdoing? And this has always been the problem of, of people. You find people saying today, ordinary people, people never think properly about it. They say, why does God allow this? Why does God allow these murders to go on? These horrible things to happen? Why doesn't God stop it? Why does God allow war? Why does God allow? Now, it's sometimes very foolish to ask why. Like a little boy is driving around his father in the car and he says, Daddy, what's that thing in the field over there? And his father says, it's a cow, my boy. And then he sits around and he says, Daddy, why is it a cow? Well, what's the answer to that? So very often, why doesn't have an answer because it's a stupid thing to ask anyway. It is a cow. Don't ask why it's a cow. And, and things happen and you can go on till the kingdom comes and say, why, why, why? But that's how we, 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 we act and react. Why? Now, what is the trouble is, he says, I'm crying out to you about these things, Lord, and you don't answer. So his problem isn't only about the things that, that happen around and why they should happen, but why doesn't God answer his cries and his prayers? And this is a problem of faith, isn't it? That so often we pray about things and ask and the answer doesn't come and we say, Lord, well, why don't you answer? Perhaps you, Father, why don't you answer? And God seems to be silent. It is this problem of the silent God that is Habakkuk's problem. And so he, he's bewildered because he believes in God. He believes God is holy and righteous and just. And yet God doesn't seem to act in this situation and doesn't answer his prayer. Now, of course, he wasn't the only one that had this problem. In Psalm 73, if you'd like to note that, Psalm 73 is a very important psalm uh, to study. As a man has precisely the same problem, whoever the psalmist was, he sees the wicked flourishing, people doing wrong things, and the righteous suffering, and the humble being crushed down, and he doesn't know what the answer is, and he's troubled about it. And then he says, and I've done this, and I've prayed, and I've been righteous, and so on, and yet all these terrible things happen to me. And he says, I, 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 I despaired of it until I went to the sanctuary, and then I began to get the answer. So Psalm 73. The other man, of course, who has this problem, as you know, is Job. And poor old Job, in the book of Job, he's a righteous man, he's a godly man, he prays for his family, he's got everything that a man could have, and yet he loses it all. And all through the 22 or more chapters of Job, Job is arguing, and he's trying to wrestle with this. Why does God allow this? Because according to his religion, if you're a godly man, everything's going to be prosperous. And yet it wasn't for Job. And so he has this problem. Why does God not bless me and help me? And he comes through in the end. So they all come through as Habakkuk does. 
Now the answer to the problem is found in verse 5. God says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something. One of the versions says, I am doing something. In your days that you would not believe something unbelievable. Even if you were told, ah, that's fine, God is going to do something. He is doing something. So Habakkuk begins to, uh, his faith begins to revive now. God isn't, isn't deaf. God is working. And perhaps you, you believe that. You say, well, I believe God is working. I, I can't see what he's doing, but I know he's, he's, he's answering, and I'm trusting him. But then, wait a minute, it goes on. This is what I'm doing. He says, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people, a law to themselves. They promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, or cheetahs if you like, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. The horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come in on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sands. They deride kings and scoff at rulers and laugh at fortified cities. They sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men, guilty men they are, whose own strength is their God. Now who are these people? Well, there's been a great empire called Assyria. You've known about the Assyrians. Now, they had invaded previously, but now the Chaldeans, who had become the Babylonians, have revolted against Assyria and overthrown Assyria. And they have become the dominant power in the north. The great Babylonian empire. Nebuchadnezzar and all the rest are going to come. And they're ruthless. Here's a description of these people. They're first class soldiers. They've got a great army. They're well trained, well disciplined. They've got a ruthless uh, man in charge. Uh, they're, they're ruler. And they're going to come. And they're going to come because Egypt in the south is going to come up to try and stem the, the Chaldeans and so poor little Israel is going to be caught in the middle and because Israel is looking towards, towards Egypt for help the Chaldeans are going to be merciless and they're going to come and they're going to uh, sweep through the land and devastate everything. And God says, I am raising up the Chaldeans. And this produces in, in, in Habakkuk uh, an even deeper problem. How can God possibly use evil people like these Chaldeans for his purpose? And yet God says, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Now, here's a principle which we need to realize. God is so great and so wise in his counsels, it's far beyond our understanding. But God knows what he's doing. And there's a rhythm of things that God raises up one nation to overthrow another. He allows one nation to go so far in its evil and then he, he, he judges that nation by using another nation. He says he would use the Chaldeans as a razor that is hired. A man hires a razor to shave himself. God says, I'm going to hire, I'm going to use these people for my purpose. And this has always been the process. God used the, 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 the Chaldeans to overthrow the, the, the Assyrians. 
And then God rose, rose up the Persians to overthrow the Chaldeans. And then God raised up the Greeks to overthrow the Persians. And then he raised up the Romans to overthrow the Greeks. They were all evil nations. And God used others to chastise them. And in the end, Rome itself, the great Roman Empire, the greatest of all, was overthrown. And you remember that Daniel has this picture of these empires, one following the other, until at last there's one empire that comes, which is the kingdom of God, that destroys them all. That's God's final empire. But here it is, God says, I am raising up the Chaldeans. And he cannot understand this. And brethren and sisters, there are things we just don't understand about the workings of God. Because God is so far beyond our understanding. And Habakkuk has to learn this. So, this only seems to aggravate the problem. May I just emphasize again, don't think that you can be a believer without having problems. Many of us have had intellectual problems. Things we don't understand, we can't tie them up together. Others of us, had, uh, others of us have had, had financial and physical, domestic problems. that seem to contradict what we believe God, God has promised us. And we have to live with that. Some do, uh, problems arise, somebody said, in proportion to the purity and the tenderness of a man's conception of God. The deeper you believe in God, the more you may have to deal with problems that arise within yourself. And because it rises, faith rises from so pure a source as one's relationship to God, it carries within it the, its own solution eventually to the problems. So there seems no answer, but there is God. And when there doesn't seem to be any, any answer from God, don't forget there is the God of the answer. He's still there. And so what Habakkuk does in verse 1 of chapter 2, and by the way, the rest of chapter 1 is a description of these Chaldeans, see? He says, So I will stand upon my watch and just station myself on the ramparts. He's not the first Jehovah's Witness, but he's on a watchtower. <laughs> Watchtowers were towers that were set in vineyards and things to watch what was going on, where the robbers were going to come, or wild beasts and so on. They watched the vineyard. So he's going to get on a, a spiritual watchtower. I'm going to station myself on the ramparts, a ramparts looking out from a city to see what's happening. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give, I am to, give to this complaint. So here is the, not just the problem of faith, but the persistence of faith. The wonderful thing about real faith is it persists through the problems. I have a saying, and I've had for years, that when I have a problem about something, I just cannot understand it. Pray about it, study it, read about it, talk about it, don't get any answer. Then I have a little attic in the back of my mind where I hang up little bundles and I wrap the problem up in this little bundle and I hang it up in my attic. And there may be quite a few bundles up there but I leave them there. I'm not going to continually be in a ferment and lose my peace about a problem I can't solve. 
There's nothing I can do about it. So I hang it up. And very often, in process of time, the little bundles unwrap themselves. And the problem just solves itself. Sometimes they remain there. I've got bundles up there now, which still are there. I don't know when they'll unwrap. You see, Martin Luther said on one occasion that there are three lights by which we live. There is the light of reason, or the light of intellect, if you like. There's the light of grace, and there's the light of glory. Now, you and I know a lot of things by the light of reason, particularly in this scientific age. We can amass knowledge and know all about all sorts of things, marvellous things. But the reason doesn't interpret to you spiritual truth. You have your, your mind bursting with, with, with rational knowledge. You can't understand a thing about the Bible, what it's all about. The natural man does not perceive the things of the Spirit of God. And that has to come not by reason, but by revelation. For God has to show you things. Amazing what God will show you when your heart is open to his revelation. But then there are lots of things that you don't understand even by revelation. Hands up here, who can tell me what is the answer? How do you, how do you, how do you uh, explain divine predestination and free will? Nobody can. And Luther couldn't, nor could Calvin really. And Luther said, that waits for the light of glory. And in the light of glory we shall understand the things we could never understand in the light of revelation, even here on earth. So wait for glory to come. Then all things will be revealed. And we shall know as we are known, and we shall understand all things as we look back in retrospect. When I stand with Christ on high, looking all life's mystery, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. That was the hymn by uh, Murray Machane. But then, Lord, shall I fully know. So leave the little bundle up there if you can't un unwrap it. Let it unwrap itself or wait till the light of glory comes. God will look after that bundle. And so Habakkuk gets on his watchtower and he says, I will wait. And as he waits, he gets a revelation from God. Verse 2, Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. Or as the authorized says, he may uh, run that read that, run that, that reads. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks at the end, and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Now here's a revelation that God gives. And you've got to wait for it. And that's where patience comes in, the persistence of faith. Lord, I don't understand now. God has shown me something. I don't know how it's going to work out. Maybe a long time but I'm going to trust God that his revelation will come to pass. And many have waited all their lives and haven't seen what God has shown them come to pass. May come quickly, may not. Habakkuk has to wait, the persistence of faith. Now, God explains in this revelation that there are two types of people at that time and in all times. The first is in verse 4. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. 
Here is a person who is proud and perverted. He is not upright, he is puffed up. This word puffed up, of course, comes in the New Testament. Remember Paul Corinthians writing, you are puffed up. You see a frog, it's all puffed up, it looks great. You know, uh, there's grizzly bears, you know, when they get angry they pull out all their fur and they look huge and you think, oh, this is a terrific monster. You imagine that thing that could be perhaps very weak. And being puffed up, psalmist says that the, the uh, ungodly, he's like a bay tree. He struts about, he's puffed up. And this is what these Chaldeans are like, they're proud people. It said that, didn't it? In chapter, he says, guilty men whose own strength is their God. They become so cultured, so strong, so mighty in their military power, it's their God. And Nebuchadnezzar like this, was like that. Ultimately, the Babylonian king. He strutted about, he said, look at this great uh, empire I've built. I'm God, you see. Pharaoh is the same. And pride is there, something right deep in the heart of men. These are the people of whom Habakkuk's complaining. And this pride is at the heart both of the Jews of his time and of the Chaldeans and Assyrians. And uh, the rest of the chapter from verse 6 onwards are, are taunts, as they're called. Will, they, will not all of them taunt him with ridicule? He, he's saying, taunt these people. And it describes all the aspects of the pride of these people. See, verse 6 is extortion. And verse 8 talks about their plunder. And verse 9 is an unjust gain. And verse 12, building a city with bloodshed. Establishing with crime. And verse 15 says, giving drink to his neighbours. So they gaze on their naked bodies. And, and so on. And violence. And, and idolatry. There's such a description in the rest of chapter 2 all manifestations of this terrible pride that puffs these people up. They're all describing pride and perversion. But it ends up by saying, verse 20, that, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Now the point here is this, that that's all that's said about these proud people. It doesn't say what they're going to do eventually, it's of any value, they're going to persist, they're just going to come to an end. And I think there is a, a point here, that the divine principle, I mentioned it last week in regard to Hosea, that sin carries within it the seeds of its own destruction. I don't know how many of you are interested in wildlife and so on, and look at programs, uh, but uh, I do. And uh, there is a, a wasp that has a very clever way of raising its family. It finds a certain caterpillar. And uh, while the caterpillar is thinking of other things, the wasp lights upon it and in, 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 in inserts in it some eggs of its own. Caterpillar is quite unaware of it. Goes on feeding and feeding and feeding. The eggs hatch inside the caterpillar. It gets more and more hungry. It eats more and more. It swells to a great size. But all the time there are these 
little maggots inside, eating it out. And in the end, uh, the maggot dies. And of course, the, uh, the, the caterpillar dies, and the maggots have got their larder all around them, and eventually they, they turn into pupa and into wasps, and they come out, and that's the way they reproduce. And I, I saw that as an illustration of what sin is. Sin works in us unto destruction. And very often judgment doesn't have to come on us like a boat from the blue from outside. Judgment comes by the outworking of sin in our own lives and our society. We see that happening. Sin always produces its own rewards. And that's a very solemnizing thought. If I want to just continue in sin, I am allowing my own destruction to work out. That's what destruction is going to be eventually. And that's what happens to these Chaldeans in the end. They themselves become corrupt and become overthrown by another nation. And what the message of the Bible and the message of Habakkuk here is that pride and moral perversion can never ultimately triumph. God has so ordained this world that evil cannot have the final word. Righteousness eventually must triumph even if it's only when Jesus comes. Praise God for that, don't you? I said there were two types. Verse 4 is one, the one who is puffed up, the one who is proud, whose desires are not right, but the righteous will live by his faith. Now here is one of the most important verses in the Bible. You will know that three times it's quoted in the New Testament, in Romans and Galatians and Hebrews, the righteous shall live by faith. It was the great verse that set Martin Luther's heart alight when he discovered that righteousness did not come by works of the law, by all the rituals of the Catholic Church, it came by faith. And it emancipated him to believe in Jesus and to be really saved. And this this broke open the whole of the world to the Reformation. And the keystone of the Reformation, which we are the heirs, was righteousness comes by faith. Now, I don't know that that was what Habakkuk meant, necessarily, but that's how it became interpreted in the New Testament. And Romans, which is the great epistle of salvation, says salvation comes by faith. And Galatians, which is the great uh, epistle of liberty, says freedom comes by faith, not by works. And Hebrews, which is the great uh, epistle of, of fulfillment of life, says that life, you must live by faith. But what did it mean for Habakkuk? Well, I believe what he meant was this, that this word faith, probably in the original, should be faithfulness. And certain um, translations says the righteous shall live by his faithfulness. Now what is faithfulness? Faithfulness is fullness of faith. And if you have faith and that faith grows and you become a man full of or a woman full of faith, you become a faithful person. Because God is a faithful God. And you have faith in the faithfulness of God and you become faithful. And what he's saying is that through all this terrible situation, there are those 
who will not have pride and, and perversion as the standard of their life, but will have faith as their standard. will trust God and will become faithful people and will live through it. Now notice it says the righteous will live. It says uh, the, 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 the man who's proud, his desires are not upright. That's all it says. It doesn't say he's going to live. He's going to die. But the righteous will live. And the emphasis is this, that life comes through, real life comes through faith. That which is founded on pride and unrighteousness is not real life. But that which is founded on faith is real life. I have come, said Jesus, that they might have life and that they might have life more abundantly. And we live by faith. We receive eternal life by faith. Spiritual life comes by faith. And we live our daily life by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And so what he's saying here is that in all this confusion that I don't understand, there are those who are going to come right through it because they're going to be trusting God in the situation. Amazing. And here's the great, great divide. The great divide today. We divide people into those who are believers and those who are unbelievers those who trust God and those who trust in themselves. I notice that the, the Living Bible speaks about the Chaldeans here uh, uh, in this. It says that, um, you know, it's a very much a, not a translation, it's a sort of commentary really. It says in verse 4 that there are those who trust in themselves and they are not right. And then it goes on, but there are those who trust in the Lord and they live. They're the righteous. And this is the great divide between the two. The selfish and sinful and the saved. So here is the great uh, persistence of faith with its reward. Now Habakkuk saw this as he waited for the Lord to speak. As amazing how God will speak to you if you wait upon him however long you wait and listen you know trouble is we don't listen enough somebody said that um, instead of uh, using Samuel's words speak Lord for thy servant heareth too many people say uh, listen Lord for your servant speaketh and we want to do all the talking and we want God to listen to us but God wants us to listen to him because he has a lot to say. And what matters when you're perplexed and on the verge of unbelief is not to argue and not to talk but to listen and to go on listening. Master, speak, thy servant heareth. What hast thou to say to me? Now I want to give you a little bit of my personal history here if you don't mind. And I was brought up in a very religious atmosphere. My father was a, a pastor and a, and a great teacher and a great evangelist. And uh, I didn't tell you much about him, but he had a great influence on my life. And I belonged to certain people and I believed to the depth of my heart that they were the people. They were the ones who were going to heaven straight as a die. 
and uh, I was among them. But when I was uh, about 20, I came into a period of great disillusionment. I got myself a first-class job in Johannesburg in the Transvaal Chamber of Mines, and I was qualifying as a Chartered Secretary and so on, and, and uh, doing very well for myself. But I came into great disillusionment with the people which I met with. I may even tell you the details. But it had such a devastating effect upon me that I lost my faith in them completely and I couldn't meet with them anymore and I didn't know where to go. And so I just sat at home. I was studying for my finals, I had plenty to do. So I, I, weekends I just sat and gazed at the wall and studied. I didn't know what to do, where to go, I didn't know what I believed. I was in a complete turmoil, like Habakkuk. And what I was saying is, Lord, why are you allowing this kind of thing to happen in, in the church where I am? Terrible things were happening. Completely disillusioned. And I felt God had called me to the ministry. And yet I was in this terrible turmoil. And I waited. I waited. I didn't know what to do. I had many friends. And one of them was a chap called Alan. They came to see me one day and he talked to me and he said, Stanley, why don't you come with me to the church I go to? got a good minister and, and, and it blesses me and so eventually I went with him and through that contact and that minister I was brought back to the Lord and I remember that minister praying with me I remember now the words and this was 1938 7, 8 he prayed Lord this young man is looking at people and circumstances and he's in confusion. Help him to turn his eyes and look at Jesus and see that Jesus is the source of everything, not the people he worships with. And that let the light in for me and I came to see that my faith did not rest in the people I worshipped with, however sound and good they said they were, but in Jesus. And I came back to the Lord and I went to that church, I joined it, and the next thing was, they sent me into the ministry. People in that church sent me to England, paid for all my fees and everything, and that's why I'm here today. goes back to that point where somebody like Habakkuk was in confusion, and the Lord answered as he waited upon God. And my testimony is that it does pay to wait from God, because many times I have been in this situation where I haven't known where to turn, what to do, but as I waited, the answers always come. I didn't know who I was going to marry. Look what the Lord brought me. <laughs> Wonderful. Oftentimes I haven't known how to face a court or a church. And we've waited. And as we've waited, the answers come. So wait. Don't be afraid to wait. The answer will come. Now as he waited, as I just come, chapter 3, God gave him the vision. Notice in verse 2 he says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. What is this he's, he's remembering? He's remembering the wonderful things that God has done in the past for Israel. And he describes them in this chapter. And he says, renew them in our day. In our time make them known. O in wrath remember mercy. 
So he has a history of God's great working, how he delivered Israel from the Egyptians, how he led them through the wilderness, he brought them in the land, he raised up a great kings and gave them a great kingdom and blessed them, gave them his law. So many wonderful things God has done in the past. He remembers all this, he knows it. He said, oh Lord, do it again. In this situation, do it again. And brothers and sisters, this is what our prayer needs to be. That we can look back to Pentecost, which is we're commemorating on Sunday. We can look back to Pentecost, we can look back to great revivals that God has given through the ages in the most desperate situations. When England was on the verge of revolution, God raised up the Wesleys and, and gave a great revival throughout this country that changed the, the whole social nature of England and founded great churches. God's done it again and again. We said, oh Lord, do it in our day. And I don't know whether you've got a burden for revival in our day. The author says, revive thy work in the midst of the years. It says, renew your activities, O God, in our day. That's the real meaning of it. And we need to pray always, O God, we want to see you acting. And praise God, be on the watch to see where God is acting. I find when I read magazines like Renewal and Prophecy Today and others, I think, oh, praise the Lord what God is doing here, God is doing there. Great things God is doing in our day, you know. I don't think there's ever been a day, uh, certainly since the Reformation, if not ever, when God has been active on such a wide scale throughout the world in wonderful ways as he is today. So go on praying that, Lord, renew your activities in our day. And then God gives him this vision, you see. I uh, won't go through it all. And if you read chapter 3, you'll find he is describing in very uh, poetic language what God did in, in the Exodus and the wilderness and the history of Israel, how God did these wonderful things. Hmm. And then he says in verse 10, as he hears in his ears, as it were, the word of God bringing these things to him, he says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sign, sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Have you ever had that experience when God has shown you something so wonderful you felt your heart beating and your strength going? He said, Lord, I can't take any more. That's how Habakkuk felt when he got this wonderful revelation of the kind of God he had, the sovereign God who worked through history, did these marvellous things. It was too much for him to bear. And then he said, Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Point here is this, that when you are overcome in any measure by the truth of God, as I have found myself sometimes. This truth is so wonderful. It, it, it weakens me. And then I feel that I can cope with things. When I'm weak through the word of God, the revelation, then am I made strong. And because of this great revelation he has of God, he says, okay, I can now wait. Now I like, there's two things here. The authorised version says... Uh, have any of you got an authorised version here? King James? All right, can you read out in a loud voice so we all hear uh, what verse 16b says? Can 
Can you find it? Chapter 3, verse 16, the second half. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you from the front here. I have a fine... Can you read it out loud again? Shout it out. And I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble, when he cometh up unto the people in his glory and glory. Then said I, Thank you, lovely. That I may rest in the day of trouble. Now what is this day of trouble? It's the day of trouble that's going to come on the nation when these Chaldeans invade. They're going to go through terrible trouble. Their land is going to be devastated. Many of them are going to be carried away into captivity. It's going to be a terrible day of trouble. And he said, because I've seen the Lord and what he has done in the past, what kind of a God he is, I can rest in the day of trouble. It's a wonderful thing to rest in the day of trouble. See, whenever you rest in the day of ease and comfort, but to rest in the day of trouble, and all of us have to face, in some way or another, at some time or other, a day of trouble. Some of you don't know anything about it yet. But you will. Because none of us can escape trouble of some kind. Maybe illness, financial loss, maybe sorrow, maybe trouble in our family, maybe trouble that we have to pass through in our national life. A day of trouble. But what matters is, are you at rest in the day of trouble? In the Cobham Library recently, I was in there, and uh, I happened to notice that they were republishing a lot of the old classics. And uh, I was interested in seeing, and I saw one, The Vicar of Wakefield, by Oliver Goldsmith. Now, I can't remember ever reading, although I read lots of these classics when I was young, but The Vicar of Wakefield, I thought, well, I'll pick it up and read it. It was heavy going antiquated language and so on. But it was a wonderful story because it was about this vicar who was wealthy, he had a fortune, and his wife had at least, he had a lovely home, had a lovely living, and then things went wrong one thing after another in his life. He lost one thing after another, he lost his money, he lost uh, got enemies who maligned him, who did terrible things to him. In the end, he lost his home. In the end, he was put in a debtor's prison with his family and was right down, had nothing, lost everything. To a fault not his own. And yet what came through was in every situation, this man was at perfect peace. And he comforted his children and his wife and helped them. And when he was in the debtor's prison, in the most terrible circumstances, 17th century, dreadful conditions. He went down and, and talked to the prisoners and preached to them and had a reformation in that prison. And in the end, what happened? Things changed and God gave him back everything he'd lost. That was the end of the story. It was like Job. But the thing was, he was always at peace. He kept his head when all around were losing theirs, as the poem says. That's a wonderful thing We've got these inner resources that you know the Lord and whatever happens, you rest in the day of trouble. But now that's not what the New International says. What does it say? Yet I will wait patiently for this day of calamity to come on the invading nation. He sees beyond the trouble that's going to come on their own nation 
to a time when the, 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 Chal the, the Chaldeans are going to get into trouble and God is going to overthrow them in judgment. And he says, I'm going to wait patiently for that day to come. The terrible trouble is going to come on the nation of Israel. That the Chaldeans are going to sweep everything away before them. But uh, Habakkuk's come to a place of rest in God. And he says, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive tree fails, uh, crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in the God of my salvation. You know, dear friends, what matters is, have we got the inner spiritual resources that will be at peace in the time of trouble? And those resources spring from the fact that we have met the Lord and we've seen the Lord and we've come to know the Lord. We know what a wonderful God he is. And we're not looking at circumstances, we're looking to the Lord. And here's a man who's got his eyes off the circumstances, onto the Lord of circumstances. And he says, I will rejoice in the Lord, even though everything's gone. What I notice is this, there's some value in knowing Hebrew. I thought it was a trial and tribulation when I had to learn it, study it, but I go back to it, and I notice that these are very strong terms. Shall I give you the literal meaning of these words? I will jump for joy in the Lord. I will spin around in the God of my salvation. <laughs> now I can find myself getting put off when people do these pogo uh, dancing, you know, uh, you know, like this. <laughs> but I picked up a book once written by a friend of mine and it was titled Jump for Joy. Have you ever seen it? And uh, he, he had found such joy in the Lord that he described this in this book, he called it Jump for Joy. Do you ever jump for joy in the Lord? But Habakkuk was jumping for joy in the Lord. And he was spinning around in ecstasy in his singing because God was so wonderful to him. Because he said, the Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer, like a chamois, you know, on the Alps. Slipping from height to height, he enables me to go on the heights. What a wonderful message this is for us all, isn't it? Well, we may not have it all like Habakkuk had it. He had it in extremis, but we can have it. And uh, there was uh, a man who was a poet, and also one of our great hymn writers. Very godly man. But he suffered from recurrent depressions. Terrible depressions. Which distressed him greatly. And he wrote a number of our hymns in the Baptist hymn book. There are at least uh, eight of them. Beautiful hymns. One of the greatest ones is God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. So on. But one of them was a hymn that began, Sometimes a light surprises the Christian as he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after rain. We needed cheering after drought, didn't we? <laughs> but 
some people need shearing after rain and when you've got a terrible rainstorm you want the sunshine to come out and he says this is what God does and I found that when I sometimes I remember occasion being very distressed and uh, rather down and miserable and going to Westminster Chapel to hear Martin Lloyd-Jones and, and they sang a lovely hymn but all thy mercies O my God my rising soul surveys transported by the view I'm lost in wonder love of praise and as we sang that hymn there rose up in my mind the vision of all that God has done for me in my life and all my depression went and I found myself jumping for joy before the end of that hymn and time and again when you sing some hymn the Lord just breaks in to the clouds and the darkness and light shines and you're singing and praising even when you haven't got Brian to lead you but it goes on this hymn the last verse says though vine nor fig tree neither their wonted fruit shall bear though all the fields should wither nor flocks nor herds be there yet God the same abiding his praise shall tune my voice and while in him confiding I cannot but rejoice I hope this speaks to you it's a great book Habakkuk you've got to dig into it and find out what's there but it's wonderful let's pray Lord we do relate to this we thank you that you put on record the experience of a man who was confused and on the verge of agnosticism and unbelief and yet who told you all about it shared his unbelief with you and found the answer and Lord we don't, don't live in circumstances as he did that were so dire and dreadful but in the confusion of our times and the many things that bewilder us make us ask why why does this happen to me whether it's illness or loss bereavement personality problems within ourselves why am I like this why has God allowed me to be like this we thank you Lord there is an answer give us that patience and persistence of faith we may say like Job though he slay me yet will I trust in him and may we find the reward that comes through faith and the victory of faith that can spin round for joy and jump for gladness even in the midst of terrible trouble because God is the strength of our life so Lord keep turning our eyes away from circumstances and other people to Jesus may we look unto Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith and in so doing we may run the race that is set before us and come to the goal in gladness and victory thank you Lord that you give faith and that you keep us in faith because you are a faithful God Amen